Open your Bibles with me to First uh, Corinthians. We're in chapter seven, and we continue to explore what God's Word says to us about marriage among the saints. And last week we looked at the issue of marriage among the saints. And the central issue in these first seven verses that we looked at last week was the role of celibacy for both single and married people. As a reminder, within the Roman culture, multiple marriages and divorces were increasingly common. It was not unheard of for people to have been married and divorced 15 times or more. And so within the church at Corinth, there was this concern that now that I have come to Christ, should I get married? Should I stay married? Is being single more pleasing to God? And so as we looked at last week, Paul would say that to be celibate and single is a good thing. To be sexually active and single is an immoral thing. So clearly... There is a line drawn in the sand as it relates to sexual activity. To be married is a good thing, but to be celibate and married is an unnatural thing. And so because of their past life, their past experiences, the ideas that they had about physical intimacy and the body being evil and everything that we do with or to the body is evil, there was this idea that by being married and celibate, I would be more pleasing to God. I would be a more holy individual. And Paul puts this notion aside and says the opposite, actually, to be celibate and married isn't a natural thing. So the church in Corinth was in need of a lot of teaching, and as we looked at last week, we concluded with this verse in in, in verse 7 of this chapter, Paul said, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, single, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So Paul had given, excuse me, God had given to Paul a gift in being able to be celibate and single. It's a gift that not everybody has. Some people can't even imagine the idea of being single and celibate. Yet he concludes that not everybody has that gift. And the implication is that God has given others the gift of marriage And family, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to enjoy and pursue, and it is, in most cultures, the norm, although it is not necessarily required. So as we continue in this passage of Scripture, Paul will continue to provide guidance as it relates to marriage among the saints. We'll begin in verse 8 and go through verse 16 today. Verse 8 begins, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So in these 
in these verses that we're looking at today, Paul is going to speak to three distinct groups of people and a couple of subsets within a couple of these groups. And this will provide our outline for us today. So Roman number one, to those formerly married. Paul is speaking now to the group that was at one point married. And he says to begin, singleness is good. Verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. So in this group, Paul mentions two types of people, the unmarried and widows. Now the term widow is very obvious. We know what a widow is. That word has not changed in its meaning from the time that Paul had penned it. But there is a significant difference of opinion as to who the quote unmarried and quote are. So in the Greek, the word agamos, which is the word unmarried, translates to, comes from the Greek root word, which means marriage or wedding, and agamos has the prefix a put before it, and it leads to the conclusion among scholars and those who know the Greek language very well, that this refers specifically to someone who has been married before. So this word, agamos, is used only four times in the entirety of the New Testament, and it's used all four times right here in this chapter. So here in verse 8, it is used with widow as a parallel to widow, but it gives no further detail. A little bit further in our passage that we'll see today, in verses 10 and 11, it is used of a woman who has left her husband, and the instruction is that she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Further in the chapter, verse 32, it is used generically about divorce and, and reconciliation, and it gives no hint as to its meaning. And then finally, in verse 34, it is used in its most definitive state, where it says, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin. So this would indicate that the virgin relates to someone who has never been married, And the implication is that this unmarried refers to someone who was married at one point, not necessarily somebody who has never, ever been married. So, understanding what agamas means, that leaves us with two options. The unmarried refers to one who is divorced, or it refers to a widower. Now, you might say, well, what difference does it make? Well, it makes a difference, believe me. This is incredibly complex section of Scripture as we try to weave our way through this and reconcile what Paul says here and what we understand the rest of the Bible to say about about this subject. So if we believe that this word unmarried refers to someone who is divorced, it would be difficult to reconcile the Bible's teaching about divorce and remarriage and Paul's permission to the unmarried, to to, to this quote-unquote unmarried, to be remarried as he gives permission in verse 9. Kind of a messy way of saying that. So let me say that again. If we understand this to mean the unmarried is one who is divorced, then in verse 9, Paul is going to grant permission for remarriage to someone who has been divorced before. So those that believe this reverse to someone who has been divorced make the distinction that this refers to someone who was divorced before They were a Christian. Now, it's incredibly difficult to reach that conclusion because Scripture doesn't say anything about 
before conversion. It makes no distinction about secular marriage and Christian marriage. And so for Paul to grant remarriage in verse 9, based upon his understanding of the divorced one being divorced before conversion, and now after conversion wants to remarry, Paul would be taking an incredible liberty in what he permits as recorded in verse 9. Now, while both of these understandings about unmarried have merit, it seems to me, in the context of all of the study that I've done, that widower is likely the better choice since it maintains consistency throughout this passage as well as the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage as a whole. So, the one thing that we can never ever do is build a doctrine on a single verse. You can't do that. You have to take Scripture in its entirety and you balance out the less clear passages with the incredibly clear passages and you let those incredibly clear passages dictate how you understand and interpret the less clear passages. So, while both understandings have merit, it's likely that widower is the better option here. A couple of reasons why. First of all, the the term in the Greek for widower did exist, but in this period of writing the New Testament in the first century, around 55 to 65 AD, the word was almost never ever used. While it did exist in this time, the word agamos was almost always used as a supplement to whatever that Greek word was, I didn't write it down, that was not commonly used in the time that Paul wrote this letter. Secondly, throughout the entire passage, Paul deals with husbands and wives and mutuality. There are 12 examples of where Paul deals with husbands and wives over and over and over, and it would seem to fit naturally into the total argument of this verse that Paul is maintaining that pattern here. And so widow and widower are the complement to one another. Male and female, married and unmarried, widow and widower. That seems to be the logical way that this plays out in the passage of Scripture. After all, if Agamos refers to all the unmarried, then why did Paul add the distinction of widows next to unmarried? Because really, single, never married, formerly married, widowers, widowed would all be in the same category of unmarried. So it seems that widower is the intent that Paul Paul had in his mind, even though he didn't use the almost never used Greek word for widower when he wrote this letter. So Paul is likely making the distinction about widows and widowers, if they want to remain single, that is good. Nothing wrong with that. What's very interesting in this verse is this. Paul says to these unmarried, probably widower and widows, that it is good for them to remain if they to remain even as I is what Paul says specifically. So that asks the question in my mind, so does that mean that Paul was a widower? We've always operated under the premise that Paul had never been married. Paul never refers to his spouse, never refers to any children. There's a vague reference to his quote-unquote brother Rufus and his mother of mine, which leads some to believe that perhaps Paul was a widower and Rufus was maybe a a brother-in-law. 
But that's not a definitive stance to take to say that Paul was specifically married and is a widower and is making a reference that they should remain as a widower even as he is. But it's an interesting question to consider and you can have fun with that one after church. The main point that Paul makes is this. Remaining single and celibate as a widower or as a widow is a good thing to do. You shouldn't feel pressured into having to be married just because you are now without a spouse. But he also agrees that marriage is good. He says in verse 9, But if they do not have self-control, the widower and the widow, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So I believe that verse 9 helps us have an understanding that Paul is probably referring to the widower as the unmarried because here he is giving permission to those that have been divorced to remarry if they, quote-unquote, burn with passion. So if Paul is giving permission for the divorce to be remarried, then he's making an exception that cannot be substantiated in any other part of Scripture. Now, it's possible that God had given to Paul very unique revelation, but it's pretty unlikely. God hates divorce. That's pretty emphatic. It's very, very clear. We know that God hates divorce. But think about this. Nowhere in Scripture does God make the distinction between the divorce of believers and the divorce of unbelievers. If you are getting married in the hall of justice, from a justice of the peace, in God's eyes, you are bound together in holy matrimony, whether you recognize it as being holy matrimony or not. God's perspective isn't any different for the unbeliever or the believer as it relates to what marriage means. It is a lifelong covenant that you make, and God hates it when people get divorced. Paul says that being celibate and single is a gift from God, but those who do not have that gift or those burning with sexual temptation or sexual desire are free to get married again. So, as I said last week, marriage is not designed as an outlet for our sexual desires, but in God's plan, it certainly is the way that we can satisfy those sexual desires without committing acts of immorality. So the point is very clear. Singleness is good, but for those who have strong sexual desires and don't want to remain single, marriage is also good. Now that phrase, burning with passion, doesn't indicate any kind of eternal punishment or any kind of consequence. It just means that there is a strong desire for, and this is the remedy for that, is to be married again if, in fact, you are a widow or a widower. Now, Paul turns his attention to the second group of people that he mentions here, the second group of believers, most specifically, and that is to those who are married. Those who are married, excuse me, to those married to believers. Christian wedding, believer married to believer. This is what Paul says, verse 10a. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Anytime you... See Paul write that. You hear Paul say that. 
What he means by that is that this is a direct teaching from the Lord. It's not a part of the revelation that God had given to Paul. So Paul is going to very clearly repeat what Jesus himself taught. And this is what he makes very clear is that he's going to repeat what Jesus has said, not something that God has given to him. So to those married to believers, Paul says, do not leave. Do not leave. Verse 10 continues, that the wife should not leave her husband, and then you have the parenthetical statement here, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So the general consensus among commentators and scholars is that Paul is very specifically talking to believers who are married, and here he tells the quote-unquote unmarried to remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. Very clearly, not granting permission to go out and get married a second time or a third time, whatever the case might be. Now, in what Paul has said here, that the wife should not leave her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife, is a direct teaching that Jesus shared during his earthly ministry. And Jesus, quoting directly from Genesis 2.24, said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus did not make a distinction between believers and unbelievers in this divorce and this not leaving and this cleaving teaching that he engaged in here. So divorce is not a new problem. It is almost as old as marriage itself. In America, we have what is called no-fault divorce. Have you heard that phrase before? You know what it means? It means that your spouse doesn't have to have done something critically wrong in the marriage, like adultery, or physical abuse, or the embezzlement of money, or any other egregious sin. You can file for no-fault divorce for as low as $137 in Pennsylvania because you have, quote-unquote, irreconcilable differences. Have you heard that phrase? All these high-profile marriages that end in divorce typically have this phrase, irreconcilable differences. Well, they don't necessarily hash out their dirty laundry in public, but what they say is, we just can't get along anymore, and we are mutually deciding to end our relationship. So, irreconcilable differences, I think, mean something different in the Bible. So, when Jesus was challenged by the religious leaders to explain why Moses, the author of the Mosaic Law, which guided virtually every aspect of the Jewish life, when the Mosaic Law, <clears throat> they said, when Moses allowed for divorce... They asked Jesus this question. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So how do we understand hardness of heart? Well, hardness of heart is simply defiant, sinful rebellion with an unwillingness towards Repentance. A lack of compromise, a lack of forgiveness, 
a lack of tolerance, a lack of understanding within marriage will lead to a hardness of heart where the differences appear to be irreconcilable. So one of the common things in marriage is the 50-50 mold. You do your part and I'll do mine. But the problem is, how do you know the other person is doing their part? Well, you measure that by your evaluation. Well, you know, buddy boy, I don't think you're pulling your weight. I don't think you're doing what you ought to be doing. And I'm not happy about it. And if things don't change, I'm going to leave. So we have this hard-heartedness. We have this inability to tolerate the differences that exist between two people who love each other and have been made one flesh under God's sacred ceremony. And they just can't find the ability to provide forgiveness towards one another. So when both parties pursue forgiveness, differences will be amicably resolved. But when both parties don't pursue forgiveness, then the differences are going to become monuments in the marriage and they will probably lead to the idea that we just can't get along any, anymore and we just need to, to cut bait and run, man. I'm, I'm out. I am just out. So that's the hardness of heart. Some of the believers in Corinth had already divorced or were in the process of divorcing their spouse And so Paul is not discussing divorce based on adultery, for which Jesus specifically affirmed a provision for in Matthew 19.9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now I want to pause there for just a second. I want you to read what Jesus said here. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife or divorces their husband, except for immorality, which would be considered adultery, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now I'll tell you this right now, this is not a popular or a common principle that is taught in churches today. Why? Because Christians divorce at the same rate as non-Christians. And if we teach from the pulpit the biblical position of divorce and remarriage, then we're calling people adulterers. And nobody wants to be called that. And nobody wants to call someone that. And nobody wants to be offended or to ruffle the feathers or to upset somebody in such a way that they might leave because you're teaching something from the Old Testament. You're teaching something from 2,000 years ago. And that's just not the way the world works anymore. Well, I've got to tell you, God's Word is eternal. It doesn't change. It doesn't matter what you think or I think, what we like or prefer. God says, whoever divorces their spouse except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. So consistent with what Paul said in verse 9, for the woman who leaves her husband, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, or else she'll be committing adultery. Paul doesn't say that, but because he's repeating what Jesus has taught, that is the implication that he makes. So again, Paul is talking about divorce for reasons other than immorality, and probably within the Corinthian church, there were these supposed spiritual reasons why it would be good for me to divorce you, because... It would be holier, it would be more pleasing, 
or you're not a believer, etc., etc., which Paul deals with in just a couple more verses. So to those persons, the Apostle says, if she leaves, if you just can't get this to work, if this is just not going to happen, then you must remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. And the flip would be true as well. The husband must remain unmarried or be reconciled to his wife. So if a Christian does divorce another Christian except for adultery, and really if a person divorces another person, except for adultery, neither partner is free to marry another. If they do, then the Bible says that you have committed adultery. They must stay single or rejoin their former mate because only in the instance of death or a biblically dissolved marriage by adultery does God see that bond broken. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So in God's eyes, that union has never been broken, and this is what Scripture clearly teaches. So as we look at the quote-unquote unmarried, referenced in verse 8, and that Paul is affirming here that those who divorce for unbiblical reasons should remain unmarried, it strengthens the idea that in verse 8, Paul is probably talking about widowers in the category of the unmarried, and he's not granting permission for those who've been divorced to remarry again, even if their divorce occurred before their conversion. Now, the third group of believers that Paul references here is to those married to unbelievers. So the question is this, what were Christians to do who were already married to unbelievers possibly even to immoral or idolatrous pagan people. That's a tough situation to have to deal with. Were they free to divorce the one to whom they were unequally yoked and then free to either live singly or marry a believer after they divorced the unbeliever? So these were honest questions. And so in light of what Paul has already taught in this letter to the Corinthians, backing up into chapter 6, Paul taught that our members, excuse me, that our bodies are members of Christ. And because the Holy Spirit indwells us, we're temples of the Holy Spirit, the Corinthian Christians were justifiably concerned about whether or not to maintain marital union with an unbeliever. Now, there were a lot of superstitious type beliefs that took place in this era. There are some today, but not to the same degree. And so some people may have thought that a union with an unbeliever would be a union with Satan. It would be defiling to me as the believer, and it would be the defilement of my children, and it would be dishonoring to the Lord. So because marriage and divorce was so common, and because so many in the Corinthian church had come to Christ after they were married, these were legitimate questions that Paul was dealing with. And remember, Paul references earlier in this chapter that you had asked me questions about these kinds of things, and so Paul is addressing the questions that they had. So if you were married to an unbeliever and thought that this union was dishonoring to the Lord and a defilement to you and your children, there was probably a very strong desire for a believing partner. So Jesus had not taught directly about this kind of situation. And so this is why Paul says in the beginning of verse 12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, meaning that this is not a direct teaching of Christ, but it does not mean that these words are not inspired by God. 
So Paul says, so the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So before we get into these verses, it is important to understand what Paul is talking about when he makes this reference. He is talking about a marriage where one person became a Christian after they were already married. Paul is not talking about a believer willingly choosing to marry an unbeliever. A totally different circumstance. Paul addresses this matter in his second letter that we have recorded in the book of Corinthians. He says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. So while Paul does not specifically use the word marriage in these verses, the principle is very, very clear. Believers and unbelievers should not be joined together because of their fundamental differences. Paul is clearly talking about a post-marriage issue in this verse that we're looking at of one person becoming a Christian and now they find themselves married to an unbeliever. So in this instance, Paul says, if desired, stay married. If you become a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian and you want to stay married, Paul says, then by all means, stay married. Becoming a Christian after marriage doesn't mean that you should or that you must divorce your spouse. Being married to an unbeliever doesn't mean that you or your children are now defiled. In fact, what Paul says is this blesses the household. A believer and an unbeliever who are now married because of the believer's conversion after marriage, this brings a blessing into the household. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, i got to tell you that the choice of words that Paul uses here, the word sanctified, has created a great deal of confusion amongst the church. What exactly does Paul mean? Well, again, because you can't build a doctrine on a single verse, and you have to use that verse within the context of Scripture as a whole, we can say this with absolute certainty. Paul does not mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved because of their believing spouse. Now this is apparent from what Paul says in verse 16 and just a couple of verses later. But that's what the entirety of Scripture says. If our salvation can be secured by someone else then our personal decision to receive Christ as Lord and Savior becomes unnecessary. If you extrapolate that idea, if you have unbelieving children in your home, and yet one of the parents is a believer, then the children would also be saved. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches at all. And that's not what Paul is saying. So the word 
sanctification in this context references matrimonial and familial, not personal or spiritual sanctification. The basic meaning of sanctify, or the word holy, which is derived from sanctify, is to be set apart. And so in God's eyes, a home is set apart for Himself when there is a believing parent or partner in the home. Now, such a home is not Christian in the full sense of the word, but it is immeasurably superior to one that is totally unbelieving. One Christian in a home graces the entire home. Think about it like this. A Christian brings God's blessings and promises and faithfulness into a home as they live for Him. Apart from that believing spouse, there is no idea of God's goodness or God's grace or God's promises or of our need for a Savior. So the believer's faith cannot secure the salvation of anyone but himself, but he is often the means of other family members coming to the Lord by the power of his testimony and the witness of a changed life. This is what is implied, especially in the book of Acts, where it says, repent and be saved, you and your whole household. The implication is that as you have given your life to Christ, and as you have set apart your life to live for Him, and as you bring God's faithfulness and goodnesses, goodness and promises into your home, it will be a powerful testimony to the unbelieving members of your household and might actually bring about their conversion at some point in the future. They will see the powerful witness and testimony of a life that has been changed. Think about it like this. In the Corinthian culture, it was not uncommon to be married and remarried many, many times. It was also not uncommon for immorality to be present and accepted. And if you were married to what would be considered by biblical, by biblical um, definition an immoral person, and they came to Christ and their life was radically changed, you would probably say, wow, this Christianity thing has made a big difference. They're not at all like they used to be. And that becomes the beginning of their interest into spiritual things. And it is, perhaps, what the Lord would use to bring about their salvation at some point in the future. So Paul goes on to talk about the implication for children. So the children in this marriage are not unclean, as the Corinthians supposed, but are holy in the sense that they are under the blessing of the believing parent who will teach them the things of God and share with them how they can come to know God. Do you know how many stories have circulated in the church for years and years and years? Something along this line. You know, my parents weren't Christians, but I had a grandmother that was, and she prayed for me all the time. And when I came to visit with her, she would share scripture with me. And she would share testimony of how God has been faithful to her. And I've never been able to, to get those memories of my grandmother out of my mind. 
And some would say, you know, I didn't become a Christian until I was much older in my life, but I remember the faithful witness and testimony of my parents, or of my parent who consistently taught me of the things about God. And so in that sense, the children are made holy through the influence of the believing spouse who will teach them the things of God. Apart from that believing spouse, there is no truth about God in that home. There is no teaching about the faithfulness or the promises of God in that home. It is totally absent. And that home is left to figure it out on its own, apart from God's truth invading their sense of who they are and why they are here. But not all unbelieving spouses will want to remain married to this newly converted believer. When that's the case, Paul says, if not desired, then let them leave. If you become a Christian after you're married and your spouse no longer wants to be married to you because you become a Christian, the Bible says, let them leave. Verse 15, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if the unbelieving member of the marriage does not want to be married to this person after they have become a Christian, the Bible permits divorce. The phrase to not be under bondage means that one is no longer bound to remain married when the unbelieving spouse wants to, wants to leave. And rather than being bound in a marriage where the unbelieving spouse wants out, God has called us to peace, meaning we aren't to fight an unbelieving spouse who wants to leave now that they are married to a believer. Now notice that it is the unbelieving spouse who initiates this separation, not the believing spouse. Now what is really interesting is this. The implication of this verse seems to allow for the biblical disillusion of a mixed marriage and allows for remarriage when the, when the believing spouse is left by the unbeliever. Now that is implied because of the term that is used here, you're no longer under bondage. God has released them from the marriage bond just as He would in the case of death or adultery. But the one being divorced may want to stay in the marriage in hopes of evangelizing their spouse. In this case, Paul says, conversion isn't guaranteed. Therefore, let them leave. Verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now this verse creates the need for a pause. Again, Paul is talking to a believer who is married to an unbeliever. Paul is not talking to a believer who wants to marry an unbeliever. So in the context of this passage, Paul is saying this, if you now find yourself in a marriage where you are the believing spouse, and the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them leave, because you have no guarantee that at some point in the future, you remaining in this marriage is going to successfully evangelize your unbelieving spouse. I have heard this said in literal premarital counseling. Well, I know that person is an unbeliever, but I hope that after we're married, 
My life, my witness, my testimony will bring about their salvation. Don't do it. Don't do it. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. If you find yourself unequally yoked after your wedding, don't leave unless they want to leave. And if they leave, you're no longer bound by your, by your wedding vows. You've been granted release from that because there is no guarantee that you will bring about their salvation. Regardless of a Christian's motives and hopes, the likelihood of leading the unbelieving spouse to Christ is minimal. It almost never happens. There is the rare occurrence where it does happen, and unfortunately that becomes kind of a role model for how others believe they can do that. This is one of the really difficult things about having a personal Christian testimony where you did things you weren't proud of, you did things you wish you could go back and change, and your kids look at you and say, well, you know, you turned out pretty good, so what's the big deal if I do this or if I don't do that? Well, they don't understand the challenge, they don't understand the baggage, they don't understand all of the stuff that is associated with life before Christ and now that I'm saved. In a similar way, you may be an individual who didn't go to college and dropped out of high school and have found great success. And now your kid says, well, you dropped out, it worked out well for you, why not for me? Don't do it. Don't follow that example. So, if you are considering, and I say this to anybody who might be listening to this, by video or audio tape somewhere down the future. If you're listening to this and you're considering marrying an unbeliever, don't do it. The Bible says very clearly, do not be unequally yoked. But if you find yourself married to an unbeliever after your conversion, stay in that marriage if you desire and if they desire. And if they don't desire, then let them go. So the Lord, therefore, allows no option in a marriage where the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them go. God has called us to peace. Evangelism is not cause enough to maintain a mixed marriage when the unbelieving partner wants to leave. I cannot imagine being married to somebody who does not share these critical core values of what Christianity teaches us. I couldn't imagine it. By and large, women are married to unbelieving men, and I can't even imagine how much more difficult that makes it for the believing woman. I I just can't fathom how hard that is. Evangelism is not the reason to stay in that marriage if the unbelieving spouse wants to go. We often forget of just how divisive the gospel is between believers and and unbelievers. We want so hard to create an environment where we can peacefully coexist. And my friend, that's going to take an incredible compromise on the believing partner's part because Christianity and and Christians and non-Christians have nothing in common. Here's a couple of things that it says, and this is not the entirety of what the Bible says about believers and unbelievers. Here's a little bit about what the Bible says. Jesus says this, If the world hates you, and by the way, the world would be the unbelieving community at large, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, 
the world hates you. Now, your unbelieving spouse may not quote-unquote hate you, but it's very probable they're going to hate everything your life is now going to be built upon because they can't understand it, they can't identify it, and they're going to reject it because it is not their basis for truth. A little bit later in Jesus' well, excuse me, earlier in Jesus' ministry as recorded in Luke chapter 12, Jesus was telling others about how his message and the truth of the gospel was going to divide people. He says in Luke 12.53, and this is really the last thing he says, he says a lot more before that, he says they will be divided, believers and unbelievers, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And that's pretty much the whole family as it existed in ancient times. Sons brought their wives home, and the families all lived together. And when you had unbelievers and believers mixed together, the truth of the gospel message and the kingdom upon which that gospel message is built is going to create division. For this reason, when an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them leave. God has called us to peace. Now, this is not a flippant position on divorce that Paul is teaching about. He's teaching about a very real issue and a very real challenge that exists within the Corinthian church. Here I am, married to an unbeliever, and I don't know what to do. Am I sinning by staying in the marriage? Am I defiling myself and my kids because of this? What does God want me to do? And so Paul gives very practical teaching as God inspired him with eternal truth to meet the needs of the people that he wrote to. Now we can derive a lot of principles from this. Marriage is a big deal. God hates divorce. No one should enter into marriage lightly. No one should consider divorce lightly. If you divorce, you should remain unmarried unless you have biblical grounds for that divorce. It's pretty clear, but it's not very easy. Especially when we have such an intense desire to find companionship in a relationship with another human being. Well, God is good and God is faithful all the time. That never changes. And if you find yourself in a marriage with an unbelieving spouse, it's imperative that we understand what God says to us through the Apostle Paul as it relates to that position. Would you pray with me, please?